Geek Top 5, Season 5. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> this is so exciting. Geek Top 5. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And we can't go too many episodes without doing something about Star Trek. That really should be the subtitle of the show. We're boldly going back to that uh, well we've accessed many times. That infinite well where there's so much to get into. Um, the uh, Look, what's happening today is we are celebrating a part of Star Trek that doesn't always get the, uh, doesn't always get the spotlight, but... I mean, there are elements of Star Trek that just, they, that aren't, Star Trek would not be what it was if it weren't for this guy. You've already seen the title. It's Jeffrey Combs. We'll go into a little bit more about that in a moment. But I mean, if you look at the extensive resume that this guy has had, uh, frankly, it's just too much for Graham and I to, to handle on our own. So we have brought in one of our special expert consultants. Graham, would you like to roll out the verbal red carpet? It is our one of our go-tos when it comes to Star Trek topics, and definitely our go-to when it comes to Star Wars. It is Mr. Joel Colesbury back on the bridge. Hello. Always a pleasure. Glad to be back, as always. We need to get one of those little, like, like syntho flute. That, ooh, wee, ooh. <laughs> I don't know what that is. You see a guy use it in Star Trek a 6. A bosun whistle. Well, sure, but it's not a whistle in Star Trek, right? It's a little technology thing. Well, I mean, sure. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I would argue a whistle is a piece of technology. <laughs> <laughs> I feel realize that came off more like, how dare you, Grant, before than, uh, than, than I meant it to. But uh, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean, especially the one from Star Trek Six, because that's the one that like was actually the sort of technological thing. The other times I recall seeing the boson whistle in Star Trek, it was actually a whistle. Oh, um, okay. I haven't seen, I mean, you've, you've got me on that one. It looks like I, I need to brush up on my boson whistle. I believe that it's all good things in one of the flashbacks, the, when the uh, oh. card is first arriving on the, uh, on the Enterprise with Tasha, and he comes off the shuttle. It's sort of like their new old scene. And somebody's got a a real whistle, huh? Damn. Yeah, it's the, it's because I I remember thinking to myself that it didn't have that same sort of like technological like precision as the one from the uh, yeah, Yeoman Burke and Santos Santos. Oh my, ladies, God. gentlemen, and they <laughs> them's in the audience. This is why Joel is here. <laughs> Because if anybody's got it, it's this guy. <laughs> well, certainly, <laughs> when do you need? Look, if you're going to bring up bosun whistles on Star Trek, then I'm certainly <laughs> you're going to bosun the... my bosun whistle territory. <laughs> wow. Hey, I, I'm certainly one of the top five. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there with the thing? You're yeah. Anyway, top five editors of the bosun whistle page on Memory Alpha for sure. It's- it's a thing that I re- just remember noticing for some reason. <laughs> Meh. But we're not here to talk about bosun whistles. Very true. All evidence to the contrary. <laughs> uh, I guess we've got a set of dueling lists today between Graham and Joel. We're looking at the top five Jeffrey Combs episodes of Star Trek. Who wants to uh, Who wants to do the introductions here? Because even among more dedicated Trek fans, you might be surprised at just what breadth this guy has got. How do we How do we explain Jeffrey Combs? 
So Jeffrey Combs is a, a recurring character. He's one of the great guest actors of Star Trek. But other than that, he's one of the great B-movie film actors of all time. He was uh, started in the Reanimator series. That's probably where he's best known from, uh, which is sort of loosely based on some Lovecraft stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Charles Herbert West. And uh, beyond that, he also weirdly is in some ways one of the first or the first live action Doctor Stranges. There was uh, a B-movie company had the rights to do a Doctor Strange movie. They got everything in place. They cast him in it. Then somehow they lost the rights and just decided to keep going with a slightly different name. I, I, I should have had this on the tip of my tongue, but he they, they just slightly changed it. It was like Doctor Odd instead. And, uh, and so he's kind of, in some ways, the first live action Doctor Strange. Yeah. And then there's Star Trek. Yes. So, uh, one of the interesting things is he was, uh, he auditioned to be Riker originally. Did you guys know that? Actually, I did, yes. And uh, I believe that, uh, I believe um, he was beaten out by that by another actor whose name I can't remember. <laughs> uh, he's, he doesn't really get any play in any other series. So. Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually remember that, um, I think I read once that, um, or heard, or read, that when Jonathan Frakes directed an episode, he brought Combs in because he liked him. Or remembered him. There's some connection there. I wish I wish I could finish that thought. But yes, is the short answer to it. Yeah, we're taking the long way to get there. But this guy plays so many Star Trek characters, and almost all of them are are show stealers. Like they're constantly the focus of attention when they're on the screen. And to the point of which in one very special Deep Space Nine episode, where he plays two different characters in the same episode in separate plots. And I mean, both of them are sort of the fun part of that episode. Like it's so much of the great things about Star Trek are characters that he portrayed. It, it's really unbelievable the range that he has. Yes. And I think that uh, the range is what we're going to get into as we discuss. So the way I have it, my list set up is it's a series of five episodes. And uh, should we get started? Maybe would, would you like to start, Joel? Sure, I'll start with my number five, which, and again, I should say these are they're roughly in a top five order, but when every time I think about it, you know, I can never, they can move depending on how I think about it. But this is sort of like my, my most accurate. So my first sort of top five, five <laughs> was um, To the Death. So uh, from Deep Space Nine. Okay, I have um, that. I have that one a little higher in my list. So I'm going to pause you there and we'll discuss it when we get to it on my list if that's all right yeah that makes sense i feel like we might have a few um, of those as we go oh 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 yes of course. <laughs> my number five is ferengi love songs <gasps> is that on your list that is not on my list okay yeah, all right <laughs> i was surprised to have this on here too i i had uh i i I when I when we pitched this as an idea, I was like, well, how hard is it going to be? There's there's only so many episodes. And and so I started looking and his character of of Brunt is in a bunch of episodes. His character of Wayun is in a bunch of episodes and his character of Shran is in a bunch of episodes. And I was like, this is a daunting prospect to watch all of these. And eventually I was like, I just got to sort of skip through just to the 
the Jeffrey Combs parts. And when I did that, this one ended up standing out over some of the other ones that I had on my list. Uh, in it, uh, Quark is really disappointed with his life. He's upset and he goes back home to be consoled by his, his mother. And it turns out that his mother has been, is going way out of the bounds of Ferengi society and is helping the, the leader of Ferengi society with his finances and, and controlling everything. And, uh, Jeffrey Combs recurring character of, uh, Brunt from the FCA, the Ferengi Commerce Association. He is there to authority. try and, the authority, try to spoil everything. And he, he first appears in this episode in a closet, in Quark's closet, and uh, kind of blackmails Quark into helping him end this relationship between Quark's mother and the Grand Nagus. And he is so funny in the part of this, this officious Ferengi who always has, so always seems to have like the, the, uh, the upper hand over everyone. He always seems to be in control and he's so smarmy and he, he's just amazing in these, the, this whole outfit that he has and is completely unrecognizable with the whole Ferengi makeup on. He's, it's a great episode and he's great in it. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's my number five brunt. I actually really do like that episode now that that I, I ran into similar issues because uh, whenever I would start thinking about the episode, a lot of them are, they're all tend to be good episodes, but he's not really the star. And then I'll be thinking, oh man, there's a lot of other good stuff here. But like, I, I loved the whole closet thing that how everybody was coming and leaving through. Yes. Leaving into the closet. <laughs> that was just, that was delightful for whatever reason. And I guess, and this was when, um, uh, when the, cannot remember her name um cecily adams i think right yeah cecily adams replaced andrea martin um as cork's mother as moogie moogie <laughs> <laughs> and she does a great uh, job you know it's a, those are big shoes to fill but she does it very well yeah no it's a great it's a really fun episode um and i like the little action figures and <laughs> They they did well with the Ferengi, and that's actually what I like about because Brunt is on my list in a in a way in in some form, and um, he Combs has this way of also sort of when he plays a character, he also really adds to I guess the the lore of the species if that makes sense what i'm saying like like with Wayun the way that he was sort of the definitive Wayun, and I would say maybe. Armin Shimmerman made the definitive Ferengi because he played so much of it, but Brunt was also such a key character in, uh, like he really brought a lot to the species and the the whole idea of their culture. Yeah, I think like Quark, we see him as example of the Ferengi because he's the main character Ferengi, but because he's the main character, he develops, right? He has character growth. Uh, yes. The characters that Jeffrey Combs plays, because they're not a cast, they tend to sort of be the stereotypes. Uh, they, t they tend to be a little bit more two-dimensional, which is pejorative, but like Brunt is the most Ferengi in the way that he's the worst Ferengi, right? He yeah. Is, like Ed Combs does it so well. He, he infuses him with so much smarmy, silly menace. Smarmy was a word that I used a lot when I was, <laughs> when I was going through. Cause yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly it. So good for him because he's getting both of us independently coming up with the same, 
the same words. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if we like. I mean, I suspect there's going to be more Brent on these lists later, so I don't know how much detail we want to go into. But just his, I mean, given that the Ferengi are an ultra capitalist society, of course the accountants are also the secret police. Yeah, but <laughs> ge- but getting us to buy that just his. Like sort of the way Seinfeld had their Jerry and Newman, the way he just has his you know, liquidator brunt FCA <laughs> just has so much oil on it. And it's it's so ridiculous from our perspective. But, you know, to the other characters in that world, in this world of just smarmy accountants, that he's the bad one. He's the bully accountant. He pulls that off so well. Yeah, and the the way he ends at the end of this episode where he he kind of the the tables turn where at the beginning Quark is at his lowest point and by the end of this episode uh, Brunt is at his lowest point. So it's interesting watching him play both sides of it and and it's a version of Brunt we hadn't really seen up to that point, a Brunt that was utterly defeated by the end and uh it's it's fun watching this guy's range because man uh, you will hear about it as we go on. He can do just about anything and it's awesome to watch. And, and I think the makeup helps and like the, especially with the Ferengi, they have these teeth that they have to wear the, all the actors have to wear these pointed teeth and it so changes his voice that you can have him playing Brunt and Wei Yun in the same episode, which again may come up later on the list and have it be completely separate performances and and if you're not reading the credits you don't know that you can easily forget that and he's he owns this part of of brunt and uh it's great i 100 percent agree with the idea of um with what you're saying specifically about brunt and the teeth because that's something i thought about when i was watching him um for this and there's a one Time, the way that he like snarls around them and it does change his voice because Jeffrey Combs has a very distinctive voice and style, but the teeth really does change that. All right. Well, so let's, with let's move on to your number four. My number four is, um, Penk or Penk from Sunkatsi, the Voyager episode. Um, if, uh, if just for a brief summary, he is a, basically a space fight club owner. Um, he has, he knows the rock. Um, he captures seven of nine and Tuvok and puts them in his little Tsunkatsi ring, um, to fight. Um, he had this, uh, m- big mobile fight club ship, which had, uh, yeah, I, I, I wrote down the quote, reinforced hull plating protected by Tetrion based covariant shielding to prevent sensor penetration with multiphasic force fields preventing the use of transporters. Oh my so God. So Voyager with that explanation, <laughs> eh? <laughs> Tetrion, covariant. Um, but uh, so basically they get, they get Tuvok and um, Seven of Nine get captured while they're going to investigate an anomaly. And uh, Jeffrey Combs's character, Pank, puts them in the f- seven, mainly in the fight ring. And she has to fight the rock and uh, help protect Tuvok. And eventually, I mean, you know, not to give away any spoilers, uh, Voyager tries to rescue them. They don't, it doesn't go very well because it's a very powerful ship with all that Tetrion based covariant stuff. But Fortunately, Captain Janeway arrives in the Delta Flyer just in co- in time to win everything because she's Captain Janeway. 
But <laughs> and um, let's, I mean, let's be fair. As much I mean, the Delta Flyer is kind of a Mary Sue on its own, right? They're magic half Borg shuttlecraft that they built, you know, in a cave with a box of scraps. Yeah, well, it, it's it's true, and and strictly speaking, it's not so much that the Delta Flyer overpowered them. It's that it's that Captain Janeway was there to focus on the um, projector dishes so that the shields would power would be transferred to the projectors so that they could rescue seven and Tuvok. The point is, is that captain Janeway was amazing. And if captain Janeway hadn't uh, had been on deep space nine, there wouldn't have been a dominion war. So (laughs) think about that. for for I I can (laughs) feel Jesse trying to reach through the microphones to strangle you. Well, I mean, I, I, again, I'm leading into it because I love, I do like my nickname, Graham, that you gave me as a Voyager apologist. I, never <laughs> I love that. I say it all the time. Like, I'm, I'm an, a Voyager apologist. But anyway, <clears throat> the long and the short of it, though, seriously, I did like the way that he played it because he did have that smarmy club owner look. And, and, and he was smarmy, but he was so distinctively differently smarmy than Wayun. So it was that same sort of like, smarminess but it was less like slick and or or was slick in a different way like he was the guy who was just trying to get you to come to his club and spend extra money whereas Wayun was the guy who was going to like send in the Jem'Hadar after you but um it was still a good a good episode and I or an episode I enjoy um and I loved that um JG Hertzler was in it as well playing the Herogen, uh, Martok, uh, who is playing the Herogen who mentors Seven and helps her uh, learn how to fight and beat the rock and, um, you know, save them all in the end. But uh, Hertzler and Combs never did um, did any scenes together in Deep Space Nine that I can think of. So it was kind of cool to see the two these two major Deep Space Nine actors um, come together on Voyager and actually interact with each other. And they had really good chemistry. Yeah, and there for it's, me, it, it I, again. Uh, maybe this is just me looking for any reason to knock Voyager, but they are are two of the great guest actors on Deep Space Nine. They made these indelible characters of Martok and Wayun and Brunt and all the other characters that Jeffrey Combs plays, and they only use them once on Voyager. It just boggles my mind. Like these guys were up for anything and are amazing in all these different roles that they played. And and Voyager can only bring him in for this to be second fiddle to the rock. Although I, when I, I so it's it, I watched the episode in preparation for this and I was like, all right, I know I got to watch a lot. I've got to watch a lot of Enterprise. So I'll start with Voyager. Hopefully that'll be like a decent start and, and I'll, I'll get through the Enterprise and the Voyager episode. I found it so bad that I was like. This is going to be rough. This research this week is going to be almost like the research I had to do for the video game movie list where I'm just like struggling through bad movie after bad movie. And it turned out that this episode that I thought would be a contender was was just like demoralizing. I I, I couldn't handle it, how how hard it was to watch. It's I, I you know what the problem was, Graham? They didn't have enough Captain Janeway. <laughs> you know what? You might be onto something because there's not a lot of Janeway in this episode, and everyone else is really annoying. Neelix, uh, Jacote, Paris, The Rock is is 
like the one of the biggest movie stars in the world right now, who's you know Dwayne the Rock Johnson, but in this he's only credited as the Rock. He barely does anything in it. I mean, this was when his career, like this was his prime WWE stuff. He wasn't Dwayne Johnson yet. He was still yeah. just the. I mean, I don't want to say just the Rock. <laughs> I'm sure we have a bunch of wrestling fans in the audience who will be horrified. But yeah, his his claim to fame was that he was the wrestling guy, and can you smell what he was cooking? That was it. And I agree with you. I think it's clear this episode, like this episode had two goals. It was to promote The Rock and have Jerry Ryan bending around the screen as often as possible. It was one of those awkward times in Voyager where they were still trying to kick up the ratings. I don't think I hated that one as much as you did, Graham, but I certainly didn't love it as much as you did, Joel. Well, I mean, if you're concerned about things like plot, character (laughs) development, and... (laughs) Story, you know, storyline, yeah, yeah main char- then fine. We can, you know, I could, we could, we could probably talk about your favorite things, <laughs> and I could be mean about them. <laughs> no, you know, I, I mean, uh, I can't argue with any of that, and I will say I did not watch all of Tsunkatsi. Uh, or Sunkatsi, I watched the Jeffrey Combs parts because <laughs> and it was the best part it. for sure. Well, it was for sure. And then a lot of it had so little to do with him. So there was really, yeah. you know, and, and I, there isn't much to talk about with that episode besides what we've already covered. So, I, but he makes a good evil, like club guy. Like, like he would be, I feel like that character is the one that sort of shows up as like a minor Batman villain. Yeah. Like a, oh, yeah. I like like that, a, yeah. like a like a little crime lord, you know, who owns his nightclub and is, I don't know, he's doing drugs out of the back or something. And he's, he's someone who works for the penguin or works for, like one of the sort of lieutenants that has. Yeah. Yeah. I do. And yeah. He's just like, like, gotten a little above his station and gotten the attention of Batman, and he's he won't won't live to regret it. Exactly. Well, speaking of Batman, no, that's another episode. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that's I, I I get that. It is a good performance on his part. I mean, we had phrased this as like the top five Combs episodes, and I don't I don't know about that one, but I, I do see what you're saying is that that and, is and, a fun Combs moments. And I guess that when because I guess what I was really looking at too with this wasn't top five episodes with Combs in it because even when I thought about that, like everything that I liked about certain episodes weren't around Brunt, like. Um, Ferengi love songs a lot of the stuff that's hilarious about that isn't directly with him like I love the the action figures and the the beaming into the closet and all of that stuff but what I why I picked this one was because as an actor and as a Star Trek actor playing so many things to do something that in a way is so close to Wayun his main character but also he manages to do it so differently uh I, I wanted to bring that one as just a good him episode good for him for doing what he did with what he had now that's that's a very good point actually yeah i'll concede you on that one good point yeah well, i was just thinking about captain janeway well <laughs> uh, yeah that's <laughs> for uh my number four i did uh ties of blood and water so that one is, uh, I believe, the second appearance of Wayun. Uh, the first appearance, which we will talk about later, uh, I won't spoil it, but something terrible befalls Wayun, and uh, he was supposed to be a one-off character, but Combs made the the role so great and did such a good job with it that they had to find a way to bring him back. And this is the first time we see him interacting with Gul Dukat, and their relationship is such a defining villain relationship throughout the rest of the, the series. They're 
chemistry together is incredible. And it starts right here. Uh, Wayne's back there. He and Ducat come to the, to Deep Space Nine to try and stop this, this, uh, Cardassian general from revealing all this information who's got those ties to, to, uh, Kira. And they're, they're always, throughout the whole episode, they're trying to get access to him and trying to convince him to come back with them. And one thing leads to another. That guy ends up dying and, and they leave empty handed. But, the whole time, this this chess game going on between them and Cisco and uh, Wayun and Dukat, it is a great introduction to what the character will become because his role as like the liaison with the lead Cardassian for the rest of the series is is so central to the plot of the 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 whole arc of the franchise, the whole arc of the series. It's amazing to see the seeds planted here, and. The best part about this to me is like he, he first gets he introduces himself to Cisco and they have this great interaction. He's so uh, willing to like bow before him and and prostrate himself and make himself seem like he's just excited to be in his presence. But, you know, he's playing games, he's pulling strings and then he watches the interactions between Ducat and Cisco and, and just says what we're all thinking, like marvels at their interactions and the, the mental chess games that they're playing. Uh, but my favorite part is when he's playing Dabo, the, the gambling game that they play in Quarks, and he gets so into it. Like he's he's there on this official mission and he's like laughing and having a great time in a society of Wayun that we don't really get to see again. It's fantastic. And that the the end of that scene involves uh Cisco bringing a bottle of Cardassian alcohol, Canar, to the table and trying to get Ducat to drink it. Ducat keeps uh politely refusing and then Cisco reveals that it's filled with poison and it had been delivered to the Cardassian general and he knows that Ducat's the one behind it. And then Wayun takes the glass that Cisco poured of this incredibly poisoned Kanar and drinks it in one shot and is just like uh, disgusted with it, but reveals that yes, he's immune to poison. It's a great thing for a diplomat to have. And, but his performance, the way he, he like, he reacts to this deadly poison. Like it's just a bad taste. It's so oh, goodness. Funny. That is quite toxic. Isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's so good. Ugh. And it's so different from Brunt. This episode is uh, the 19th episode of the fifth season. The previous one I talked about, Ferengi Love Songs, is the very next episode, season five, episode 20. So you get two Combs performances a week apart, and they're so different, and you, you wouldn't guess that it's the same actor. It's amazing. It's interesting when, because I, when I love, because that's his first thing back, and Cisco makes a comment about, I watched you die. Because, oh, because, you know... Which we'll get to, but the reason I bring that up, and I realize as you say that you specifically didn't say that before, but this is near the end of season five, this episode. Um, I forget the exact number, but it's closer to the end, I want to say. Yeah, 19th and, episode. 19th. And the other, there was another episode, which wasn't Jeffrey Combs, but I do enjoy it, The Ship, where they find the crashed Jem'Hadar ship. Right, um, Kivon, right? Yes, yes, the the no, I Kivon the the lady. The Kivon was the one who um Kivon's uh, the one who betrays all the Jem'Hadar to yeah. save his own life. This is the one where the lady is trying to keep them out of the ship cuz she's trying to hide that they have a oh, founder okay. there. 
And I do believe her name starts with a K, which is... uh, But anyway, the whole point is, though, in that episode, she says, oh, I've heard about Wei Yun's uh, report on you. And that was after... Right after he was supposedly dead. And then there's this like little drop that she read a report about him working with Cisco. Uh-huh. Um, and, and then he makes some comment about, you know, oh, oh, you really live up to your report from Wei Yun. And they don't even really touch on that at all there. And, and it wasn't until I was going through this, I was realizing, wait a minute, he died. And then he says this thing where he was like, oh, I didn't know what, why are you here? And then right in between that, few episodes back another Borta drops this little easter egg there that um, she'd actually spoken to Weyoun about working with Cisco and we don't really deal with that and I'd never really clocked that before huh well there was I mean I think the ship was season two uh, or episode two or three or something like that but uh, he definitely had already you know we already thought the character wasn't coming back and then all of a sudden you know we get this hint that actually oh maybe he is Anyway, yeah. Okay, so my <laughs> number three was uh, Brunt <laughs> FCA from Body Parts, and that was the one that I that I liked because you know Quark is supposedly dying, or so he thinks. Uh, he went to a crappy doctor who uh, spends too much, and there's that great little joke about why don't you go see Doctor Bashir? And Quark says, Doctor Bashir is free. How good can he actually be at his job? <laughs> Uh, and what would he know about Ferengis? Um, so he has all this debt because obviously Ferengi, they need to clear their debt but while they die, before they die, because it's a big faux pas if you don't. So to get money, he's selling himself on the internet or the, uh, the Ferengi um, futures exchange, I think is what they actually call it. But uh, I like to call it the internet. Um, and Rom is supportive as usual, and he doesn't really get any bids. He gets like 17 bars, three strips, and some other. And uh, Rom's like, oh, it's that's a nice opening bid. And then all of a sudden, a bid for 500 bars of gold-pressed latinum comes in for his body. And uh, he's excited about that. Then it turns out, oh, he's not dying because he saw a crappy doctor, but he's already sold himself. And who shows up to claim it but Brunt, FCA, who's still very pissed off about the um, being bested by him in the whole uh, Ferengi love song situation. And meanwhile, in this episode, um, the O'Brien's baby is moving into Kira's body. Uh, that was the beer, the B story, I think, or maybe this was the B story. Um, I mean, but this but, was the one we remember, right? And that might be yes, because exactly. of Gomes. Well, exactly. So for me, it's the A story. I don't actually remember most of the brunt. And when I was looking at the, the episode, I was like, oh, yeah, that's when this happened. Um, but I liked it because he's gone. He's starting to get a little unhinged. And there's sort of this, like the characters, you see him throughout Deep Space Nine. He kind of goes by going up against Quark and being obsessed with him. He he always seems to get lower and lower um, each time you see him uh, until he loses his job and, and all that. But you really kind of start to see uh, him sort of coming apart. He clearly has a vendetta and we do talk about him as the Ferengi of Ferengis, but he very specifically says, this is personal. This isn't business because, you know, Quark's like, well, I'm not dying. And he's like, I want, I'll, I'll give you a refund. And he's like, I don't want a refund. I want what I paid for. And uh, he wants Quark to kill himself. So there's the great scene where uh, he goes and hires 
um, Quark hires Garrick to try and assassinate him. And then there's all these different little things in it. But um, he specifically says, uh, Brendan, no, this is, this is personal, not business. Um, and it's like, he's using the letter of Ferengi law instead of the spirit of Ferengi law, law to get what he wants. But um, he goes on this great rant about how how much he hates Quark because he's a philanthropist and he gives customers credit at the bar. He only takes 30% of his employees' tips. Uh, He apparently sold food to starving Bajoran uh, refugees at cost. And um, then he says all of these humanitarian enterprises and i love the way that he says humanitarian we don't hear that enough in deep space nine but i really just liked how he was playing brunt a little crazily there this was the episode where i really was thinking about the teeth and how well he used the teeth and the fangs and and how he would like sort of do that big smile where he pull back all both his lips so you could see the whole prosthetic right but uh, and 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 the episode was good too because it has that crazy thing where they uh, beamed a baby from Keiko into um, Kira. Probably the most creative way to hide a pregnancy on the show uh, I've ever seen, like on on in yeah, the guess, history of television. I guess they ran out of lab coats. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I I can I can see that also is a valid brunt. Like 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 For that sure. is a great brunt performance, and Combs does it with just the right taste of unhinged mm-hmm. and like that rant you describe as much as it's personal as much as it's, it's i hate you quirk there's also a sense of like look what he's done to my society like look like what a depraved maniac who doesn't take the majority of the tips like like this is this is harmful to like who we are as a people like this like the grandstanding of it but again the ludicrousness of that yeah that's something it's Combs enthusiasm is what's the word i'm looking for like 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 just turning it up to 11 like yeah. you know his maximizing the character making it so big and chewing so much gravitas there you go that's the word thank you oh, i was gonna bug me all night the gravitas of that performance especially given that it's for such a ludicrous premise is phenomenal there's also this long history of uh star trek and other sci-fi series taking the premises of movies and then like star trekifying them and i watched the movie bullworth recently and that part of the plot of that movie is a presidential candidate or like a senator who hires an assassin to kill him and, and he's like just I don't want to know how it's going to happen. I don't want to know where or when. Just I want to be dead by the end of the weekend. And I, when I saw it, I was like, oh, well, the, this must be the Star Trek version of that movie. I was just looking at the dates. This came first. Bullworth stole the idea from Deep Space Nine. Yeah, a lot of original great ideas on Deep Space Nine. You know, like the the shapeshifters and the like. They, you know, the the like, or who's a shapeshifter? That became Cylons. Right, and, yeah. that's, and that's not just I'm saying they're similar. I'm saying the people who wrote Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> they got their start on Deep Space Nine. It's a lot of the same crew. That's true. And when all y'all were freaking out about Battlestar Galactica, I was sitting there going, I've seen this one. <laughs> <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. That's another podcast, too. <laughs> 
All right, well, maybe I'll jump to my number three, which is was uh, Joel's number five. Like five, uh, yes. To the death, the first Wayun appearance. So, in this one, uh, a bunch of renegade Jem'Hadar have uh, are, are found an Iconian gateway, and they could go anywhere in the galaxy and destroy whatever they want, and Wayun and a bunch of loyal Jem'Hadar want to stop that, but they are stuck using the Defiant with the uh, crew of Deep Space Nine to to accomplish that mission. And this is our first appearance of Wayun, who takes uh, the role of Vorta. I think there have been a couple of Vortas before that, but once he... Jeffrey Combs shows up in that role. He defines what a Vorta should be. Anytime I, I, after he appears, anytime another Vorta appears, I'm always like, what the heck? Why isn't it Wayun? Why didn't they just use him? No other Vorta comes close to being as good at it as, as Jeffrey Combs is. And you can see it right from this first episode. He has such disdain for the Jemadar. He is so fake nice with Cisco and the rest of the, the Deep Space Nine crew and just utterly worshipful of Odo because Odo is a changeling. Changelings are the founders. Founders are the leaders of the Dominion, which the Jemadar and the, the Vorta revere as gods. And he encapsulates all of that range of emotions in this one performance in a way that no one else comes close to. It's fantastic. Well, it, it, those are a lot of the same reasons that I had. Um, I do like, I did like the Iconian tie-in and I, I was actually thinking about they should do some, uh, hoping they do some Iconian stuff on lower decks. Cause that would be fun. They could do stuff with that. That's true. But yeah, I, I had basically the, 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 the same thing because it really does establish, but not only does it establish Wayun as a character and the Vorta as sort of like, the Vorta's role, it also really established the Jem'Hadar's role as well. And the role or the, and we kind of got to see a little bit of the inside politics between the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta, like the first time of, um, like the renegade Vorta and uh, Ometa clan just uh, says that um, he calls Wayun out in the turbo lift saying, we know that there's a gateway. Um, you, you, you can stop lying to us here and we're, you don't need the white to control us. Like, yeah. and there's that scene with um, Wayun and Cisco where he says, Oh, well, you know, we have the white to control the gem Hadar uh, because they're not fully, under our control and and that's i often wonder if he was being if that was part of his game or not and i think maybe it sort of wasn't it sort of wasn't but the way it kind of plays out at least i felt over the series was the Jem'Hadar were just as loyal to loyal to the founders on their own um as the vorta were but the white was so the vorta could control the Jem'Hadar, not so the founders could control the Jem'Hadar, and um that we never we we first get to see that sort of dynamic between them, and even though they do train together, they do their work team, uh, their mixed teams uh, for their assault, uh, and they do have a little bit of bonding as a team. By the end of it, instead of having found common ground, it's just more solidified that these people are the anti federation, and I think that's something that maybe. Um, Ira Bayer said that the Dominion was supposed to be the really the anti-Federation, the polar opposite. Uh, so, and I feel like they were really um, getting that here. Yeah, it's, yeah. 
It's a great thing. And the, this, the episode also has, as w- one of the Jemadar and other recurring uh, Star Trek guest star, Brian Thompson, who played a bunch of different parts, including multiple Klingons. And he's really good as this like bully Jemadar who fights with Worf. It's just as Deep Space Nine in particular had such an amazing guest cast. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to shift off of the first appearance of Wayun too quick. I mean, there's like a lot of what you guys are describing there are, like, a lot of emphasis needs to be put on Weyoun as a disruptive force in this episode. If Weyoun wasn't in this episode, it would be enemies putting aside their differences for a common good. And Cisco and the bridge crew would fly out with the Jem'Hadar and they'd butt heads a little, like especially, you know, the lower crew members, but they'd get the job done. Weyoun in this episode it's like his job, I mean, his job from a production perspective is to keep everyone on their toes because no one can trust him. Like the Federation can't trust him, but the Jim Hadar can't trust him either, even though he's sort of got them locked in this box. But from a character perspective, Weyun is just like, oh, here's an opportunity to do so much damage, like the way a high school bully would do damage by like dropping the wrong like words into the wrong person's ear. Like, he's just pricking at people with these verbal needles. And it's something that I think he does with Weyoun's character really well, is the, I'm perfectly just, I'm just here to help. I'm just here to point out these things that you really need to be concerned with. And just getting under everybody's skin. And it's surprising to us in the audience, because you figure he's of the bad guy's side, like, but they don't like him either. Mm-hmm. And that's what, I mean, we're all dancing around it, and that's what happens, is at the end, he pricks at the Jem Hadar one too many times, and they vaporize him. Yeah, it's a, a ballsy <laughs> move, and it's a, it's a you know, it's, again, a side of the Jem Hadar you're not used to seeing. And, and maybe it's something that we don't really ever see again, but this particular Jem Hadar has more self-awareness and, and more self-control than I think any other Jemadar we encountered does. And he is like, I'm tired of this guy. We can do this job without him. And they'd vaporize him. Well, <laughs> and remember, they wait until the mission's over. Right. They blow up the gateway. They, everything's taken care of. And then it's, what is it? It's something like, like I just want to inspect the ruins just to make sure you actually Ooh. did your job. And you know, something like that. And it's not even like a, a mo- like, the, like immediately a Jim Hadar just points the gun, vaporizes him. It's like, okay, <laughs> enough of that. That set up where what we learn in the audience, it's like, um, uh, it's like Gene Wilder in Willy Wonka, where he comes out of the, we see him for the first time and he's walking with the cane, right? Yeah. And then he loses the cane and we think he's going to fall, but he does the tumble and roll and he's okay. And haha, it's a joke. But in the audience, like we know subconsciously, maybe not even subconsciously, but we know now that this guy can't exactly be trusted. Not everything about him is what it seems. Right? We get the same sort sort of thing from Weyun here, where it's like nothing this guy says is ever going to be what it actually means on the surface, and he's always going to be just trying to to prick at you from underneath. And it's a great way to set it up. And he does it very well at delivering it. And 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 you knowing, like he 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 delivers it as as um, 
in such a way that, you know, within the scene, you know that he's coming off as genuine, but we as the audience know that he's not being genuine. Like, it's, again, yes, great. Like, the way he does that is perfect. He was, I call him the Bill Ross of uh, Forta, right? Because they, they finally, they always had trouble with their admirals because they were either nuts or corrupt or something. <laughs> yeah. And But they finally found like a good, consistent, admiral with uh bill ross and 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 they kind of finally found somebody to do what they wanted and and who was able to play it and project it the way that they wanted to and way and they just sort of hit it right on the mark with uh uh with jeffrey combs and when i heard what he, he was coming on to um enterprise back a million years ago now um I was like, okay, well, that's great. Jeffrey Combs will bring something to this at least, no matter what. I'll enjoy watching him. <laughs> okay, well, why don't we jump to your number two then? Well, my number two is Weiyun Six, specifically from the from Treachery, Faith, and the Great River. That's also my number two. Oh, excellent, <laughs> excellent. We finally, I should point uh, out, like, there are a ton of Jeffrey Combs episodes, but you guys are like, <laughs> consistently hitting the same great well, lines. I guess. We find that two of the same out of what, like six so far. But yeah, we I well, I sort of figured that we would hit some highlights. Anyway, you go for it. This is a, a a really good one to to be a number two. So take us away, Joel. Well, just for a brief synopsis, it starts with Kira getting a sensual massage from Odo. <laughs> Odo gets a call from his old Cardassian friend, who uh, Gal Rousseau, who was the guy who would stand on the cliff in the shadows, I'm pretty sure. Um, but he thought he was dead. He gets there, um, and it turns out that he wants to defect to the this Weyoun. Oh, it turns out that it's Weyoun who wants to defect to the Federation and it's like, what the heck? And um, it takes a little bit of convincing to get him to trust him, but it it comes back to that whole thing with this first interaction where Odo meets him that he's, he's Weyoun, but I believe him this time. Like he's saying sort of the same lines of being your friend, but Combs subtly changes the delivery and the way of saying it so that I like, even as the audience are like, Oh yes. Okay. I actually do think this is genuine at this point as well. And, and that's, uh, and it was fun to see Weyoun talk to Weyoun. But um, eventually, uh, like, they make it back. There's a, some good bonding between um, uh, Weyoun and Odo as they escape. And meanwhile, um, Cisco is making unreasonable demands on O'Brien, and Nog helps him figure that out. But uh, it's it's a I think it's a fun episode overall. It's very season seven, so it kind of, I don't know. I, I don't. I have issues with Cisco as a captain in a lot of ways. Oh, um, yeah. Here we go. <laughs> I mean, issues are not like not issues, issues like he's a fine captain and he does his job well. But it's like there's the scene with O'Brien and just making that unreasonable demand that your manager makes on you. That's just not something that like <laughs> others would have done. <laughs> others. Oh, yeah. Boy. I mean, imagine Captain Janeway would never. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, De- Captain Cisco definitely needs to take a few notes from Space Mom. <laughs> anyway, podca- different podcast. Uh, that the the it's hard to tell what's the A plot and what's the B plot. I guess the the uh, 
Wayun is the A plot in this. The B plot is delightful in its own right, but the A plot in, with Wayun chasing Wayun across the Alpha Quadrant is is so good, and him playing off it's it's literally the same character and one's on a screen and one's in a runabout and their their dynamic is fascinating to watch and and he plays them even though they're the same character he plays them in such a way that you can instantly tell who's who he's so good at that and i always love his dynamic with odo whether he's wayun four five or six his his uh sort of bowing and scraping before this man who's his god is is fascinating to watch and odo's rejection of it it's 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 really great to to see these shades of the character in different lights it's uh, it's it's a great episode i don't even know what else to say well i do like when they um their whole like when they actually get to go get to know each other you do we get that background story from uh Wei-Yun um six on the um on the runabout about the story like the origin story of the vorta um because he goes through like the entire replicator thing and he makes this comment oh they have such interesting textures and odo's like don't you mean taste and he's like no we don't really taste very much because uh the vor because well we don't have taste buds and and odo makes a comment oh seems like the founders made a mistake eh and uh even though this he wants to defect he's still like no they don't it's why would i no that's no let's not criticize the founders like that um oh and this was also a seminal episode because this was the one where we find out that the founders are sick yes um we see um uh, the female shapeshifter by uh with uh Salome Jens I think um she with her little parched face and uh Damar makes another little uh makes a comment about it yeah but and much to you know, the the uh, like shock and uh chagrin of Wayun 7 Yes. And and that was a that was a powerful scene. Like when you see his face when he's soaring like, oh founder. Um it was like he was just devastated that that, that happened. I also like the scene where they blew up the Jem'Hadar ship with their little runabout. I have problems with that. <laughs> I get Oh, okay, I'm good. Good. I get that because it- I it's no, you go, you go. Yeah. I get that we've got like oh, forty-five minutes of a TV show here, but they've presented the the Jem'Hadar as the and the Jem'Hadar ships as like amazing tactical destructive forces, and yet this tiny runabout gets in just the right spot and shoots in just the right place and it blows it up, and it felt like it undermined the whole Jem'Hadar thing. And and I know it was like, well, we got to get past this threat quickly. But I, again, space battles in Star Trek have always been really inconsistent. Sometimes shields last forever. Sometimes it takes one well-placed shot and the whole ship explodes. So I guess I can't be too critical of it. But in this instance, it felt a little too easy to get rid of the Jemadar. I mean, I'll give you this. If it helps, Deep Space Nine definitely positions those little Jemadar uh, I, don't, I always call them bug ships because they look like they have sort they of They do, yeah. Wings. I felt the same uh, thing. Like DS9 definitely positions them as kind of the TIE fighters of the, the the Dominion War. Like there's always two or three of them in a group and you always blow up one in a first pass. Like I can... All right. I, 
yeah, I like I will like I will lean back and sort of be like, okay, these aren't the toughest stuff. Like, they're not like they're big battle cruisers, right? So I'll give you that. And I always will to will will think that the Federation has always been good at and, and they say this in in um call to arms when they first take when they take over the station uh Ducat makes that comment about how uh the shields are working or Weyun says oh their shields are holding what the heck's with that and Ducat says ah you shouldn't underestimate Starfleet's ability to like step up when they need to so I've always been able to buy it from that like in their first battle with the odyssey um they were sh- they were shooting them and hitting them all the time and they didn't blow up a single ship and they didn't even do appreciable damage so they kind of they i felt that they got a lot less scary actually towards the end mm. but they did a really good job of like the build up of the dominion overall i thought in the in those first i think they first mentioned them in season one even but like they really kind of start hinting at something in season two and the whole build-up was really good but uh now having given you something i'm going to take something away and to, <laughs> to shift it back to jeffrey combs i oh fair i i'm refereeing this mostly so it doesn't matter but i just want to toss in those two cents i didn't buy defecting Wayun. Well, that's um, that's the great thing about the role and the character is he is so slippery and slimy that you never know what is real or not. And I think the first time I watched the episode or or the first any time I'm watching the episode and it's been a while, I sit there watching it and I'm like, I don't know. I can't trust. This is a way you can't trust anything he says. <laughs> but by the end of the episode, usually he's convinced me. And, and this time when I watch it for the research, I was with him the whole time. I just, I, I mean, I, I understand they wanted to create that doubt. Of course they did. That's the best part. But at the end, he makes his noble sacrifice. Uh, my reaction was just like, oh, I guess he was telling the truth. Like, I, there was, it didn't, it didn't land exactly right for me. I, oh, you see, guys I, are, you guys are dueling. I'm refereeing, but it wouldn't yeah. have been on my list. I don't think that performance, maybe it's just because we've come to distrust the character so much, but I don't think that bit exactly worked. Oh man. I, I, I thought it, see, cause I, I totally thought it did it for me. I kind of felt like it was going to be true right off the bat. And especially once you see the second the the second Wayun, like that they've activated a new one. But I looked at it more as just another example of the contrast between what the Dominion and the Federation is and all of these attributes that have come out or, or that we would or the Federation would consider qualities like questioning why you're doing something and and questioning authority and, and questioning the dogma that you're taught is considered a defect. And that he's like a defective model, like like instead of a yeah, he's a clone, but it's a living being, but he's still defective. And that was, and and all of those things that we look at as good were bad, and it just underlines that anti federation thing. I can see it. It it still didn't quite jibe with me, but neither here nor there, I guess. To quote my grade nine English teacher, your opinion is good, but it is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have a few teachers like that, too. (laughs) Okay, well, why don't we jump ahead to your number one, Joel? Well, my number one is Brunt in The Emperor's New Cloak. 
Okay. And we got um, different number ones. Um, so, I mean, the Emperor's New Cloak, a great name uh, uh, for uh, for an episode. It's a great Ferengi episode. And <laughs> essentially, as you, as often happened, Quark is having a moment about his life, as he as he does. Um, and then, uh, you know, questioning what he's doing, why. And then Esri shows up at the door, and he's got a thing for Esri. But she's dressed kind of interestingly in a, in a more edgy way than she normally does. Turns out she's from the Mirror Universe. And the the Grand Nagus has gotten himself into trouble again by going to try and expand Ferengi interests into the Mirror Universe, <laughs> as his want is. And um, while he's there, he ends up getting captured by the evil Regent Worf. So Quark and um, Rom need to go into the Mirror Universe and and save him by stealing a cloaking device from the Rotaran and uh, beaming over, I guess. Um, but what I, why I chose this was because again, the contrast of him. So he's playing the same, another version of the same character, but completely opposite. He's a good guy in this time. And Brunt is so caring in it. And, you know, they're like, Oh, let me go chill some tube grubs for you for uh, making them dinner and just being super nice. And again, you totally believe it. He's still playing Brunt. He's it's the Brunt voice. It's the Brunt teeth. Um, But you, I totally believe that, um, that he's the good guy and you feel bad when he's, when he's killed. And, uh, as these mirror people tend to do, but it's a really fun episode. I mean, I always love the mirror episodes in deep space nine. They uh, it's, it's fun to sort of see the characters play outrageous versions of themselves, like Worf screaming and ripping out his chair all the time. And as, as the regent, but I don't know, again, Brunt is not a big thing, a big, too big in this episode. And he does get killed, but it's that Jeffrey Combs flavor that uh, or pickling of the same character into something completely new that it, why it's my number one, because it's such a different thing of, of, of the character that we've seen so many times already. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you uh, in a lot of ways. This didn't make my list because I, I guess I thought he was not a significant enough part of the episode for him to for it to rank for me. But it is a great performance and, and especially taking such a an iconic well, a character that he had made, maybe not iconic, but he'd established very firmly and to take that character and flip it on its head for the mirror universe and. I know we haven't been the biggest Discovery fans, but man, this the Deep Space Nine has always been the place for Mirror Universe episodes. They did the Mirror Universe right in a way that Discovery just didn't do, and in a way that I, I wish they just had left it alone. Let let Deep Space Nine be the Mirror Universe series. Let it have its fun with it. And don't worry about it because no one can can match it. And I know Enterprise did some episodes in there too, but man, Deep Space Nine nailed it in a way that no one should have been able to. Right? It's a one-off original series episode, and to make sequels to it seems like just courting disaster. But they avoided it, and they managed to make it a recurring thing on the show in, in a great way. And I believe that episode was dedicated to um, Jerome Bixby. Who was the uh, who wrote the uh, original series? 
mirror episode, mirror, mirror. And uh, yeah, all of those. And I think that they were able to pull that off because of Deep Space Nine, because they didn't have to get into the idea of um, rewriting history or, or doing a mirror Starfleet somehow. It was, this was outside of the Federation. And, and as a result of like, these were the, the the people who the federation didn't or the federation who the terran empire uh like they were outside these were the the lower class people and then they kind of tell the story of the alliance's rise to power after the fall of the terran empire right so yes but that's not really a jeffrey combs thing (laughs) (laughs) but i just i i don't know i really liked brunt in that episode and i i always i like whenever uh, a show takes a character and juxtaposes them with another version of that same character in any sort of timeline thing not necessarily the same actor playing a whole bunch of things but i always like seeing those different facets whenever that can happen yeah i agree and and i also think it's a in a similar way this is one of the more interesting esri episodes because she gets to do that actress gets to do more with the character than she usually gets to do as nervous Esri in, in her normal role. This is a, a very different, dangerous, dark Esri. And it, it shows that actress has more range than she really gets a chance to show in the rest of the, the season that she's in. I remember just being a little disappointed when the episode came out that they didn't bring back um, Terry Farrell as Dax. as Oh, uh, that would have been a nice touch. I remember her saying in an interview, although this is just something you say in an interview, she's like, well, I mean, I'd consider, I'd, I'd love to come back for a guest star if they did a mirror episode or something. And they didn't. Yeah. It, I mean, there's a lot of he said, she said about why she left the show, but a a general takeaway seems to be that towards the end there, she was not awesome to work with. Um, oh, yeah, well, also she had that chance to work with Ted Danson and Becker. <laughs> We all know how that went. Yeah, not the decision I would have made, but who knew at the time? She um, pulled a Wesley. <laughs> no, Ter- Terry Farrell was definitely off the show by then, but I, I feel what you're getting at. Yeah. What, what, Graham, I'm dying to know. I, I am as shocked as anyone that my number one for this list is going to be an Enterprise episode. <gasps> and That is what? rare for you. <laughs> and the reason for it is because... Uh, it's, it's, it's very much a Jeffrey Combs episode. Like he's, he's, uh, uh, sort of a C character at best. Most of the time he shows up in, in deep space nine and in Voyager and on at least this one arc of enterprise, he gets to be one of the main characters. And, and that's why it landed up by number one. I, after I watched the Voyager episode in preparation for this, I started going into the, his appearances as Shran, the Andorian on Enterprise. And uh, I, I skipped some of the early ones because I'd already seen those probably for a previous list we'd done. And I jumped to the season four episodes with him. And there are uh, technically five in, in season four, but I watched the first four of them. Uh, where one where he's mainly a guest character and then this three episode arc where he comes on board to uh, sort of arrange a peace treaty with the Tellarites, the Andorians and the Tellarites uh. are at each other's throats. And uh, the, there's another ship that's 
can disguise itself as anything it wants, basically, and it's causing havoc. Sometimes it pretends to be a Tellarite and it hits an Andorian ship. Sometimes it pretends to be Andorian and it hits a Tellarite ship. And so there's there's a lot of tension in this particular episode. I'm going with for for the list. It's the end of that trilogy. It's called the Enar. Uh, and it's about a subspecies of Andorians and Jeffrey Combs stays on the enterprise after the negotiations with the Tellarites are done and goes down with, uh, with Archer, with our, the captain of the enterprise to find these Andorian subspecies that are super telepathic to figure out what's going on with this, this enemy ship. And he gets a lot of great screen time. He has this romantic relationship with a young Enar. He has a grudging friendship, respect relationship with Archer. They they solve the problem. They defeat what turns out to be this Romulan plot. It's it's great. And Shran is a character that is a fan favorite. And uh, I hadn't really given him a proper shot because I've never really watched Enterprise all the way through. I just couldn't do it. It it landed at a time that I was not, you know, it's it's not just the time. A lot of that show is around where you're watching is its best stuff. Uh, But it yeah, it took a long time to get anywhere and they didn't grow it in the direction. I think we all wanted it to go. Well, I and every Enterprise episode I've seen, I have watched and even the the best ones have been like, well, that was good for Enterprise. And then I watched these three episodes and I was like, those were genuinely good TV. I'm glad I watched them. I still have problems with them. I really don't like the performance of a lot of the the secondary Vulcans. Uh, I don't like what they did with the Vulcans in general. I, I, there's, I don't like some of the camera choices that they used, but Shran and Jeffrey Combs as Shran is great. He's easily one of the best actors in the, the cast at that point. And he elevates everything around him. Everyone else's performances are better just when they have a scene with him. It was, it was a revelation to me and gave me a newfound respect for Enterprise, and again, this is recency bias, but usually when I I sort of rank the Star Trek series, Voyager and Enterprise are at the bottom, and usually Enterprise is much lower than Voyager. This is the first time, in doing research for this, this is the first time where I've thought, maybe Enterprise could land above Voyager. I'm sorry, Joel. I'm sorry. I hope our friendship can survive. Well, I mean, that's fine. (laughs) I mean, it's... Sure. If that's the way you want to interpret the world. No, I, I agree with everything you're saying there. And I, I kind of wish that they'd gotten that they that they got their 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 shit together because they kind of did. I could have seen it going on. It's just that though that those first two seasons were even the third to a certain extent was just oi. But by the time they found their their stride, it was already too late. But I, I, I feel like I'd rather that. Jeffrey Combs was going, if there had been a season five, he would have been a regular character. Um, They were going to, they, there were plans to bring that character on to Enterprise as a consultant or something on, on, on Enterprise. And he would have been a main character finally. Yeah. His, his ship in the course of this trilogy, his ship gets destroyed and he makes a point of saying that if your ship gets destroyed, you're, you're unlikely to get another one in Andorian society. So they've kind of, they planted seeds where it's like, well, he's not going to get another ship, 
what are they going to do with him next time he shows up? And unfortunately, the next time he shows up is in the dreadful finale of Enterprise. But if they had continued for a fifth season, you could see a world where he's on there as a, a, a character just the way T'Pol is, like as a an alien observer on the, the ship. It would have been great. And they would have brought out those new uh, modifications to the Enterprise. Oh, sorry, to Enterprise. They didn't get a V right, right. in front of it. Um, and I, because, and I, that's off Jeffrey Combs, but I mean, you brought up Enterprise. And all the things you can say about it, I, I love how well designed the ship is. Like, the um, the of all the hero ships, it's so well thought out. As far as like what things do, the 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 next step, like they would have added on a secondary hall, and it's designed to have an expanded secondary hall sort of upgrade added to it after, and that was a plan for season five. But yeah, there's a lot of good ideas in Enterprise that just didn't like like they did. They were little seeds that didn't germinate, if that makes sense. So, I mean, as much as we're talking about Enterprise, is it worth talking a bit about Tran, sort of explaining, like, what his character is like? Yeah, I I, I mean, just, I, I will get there, bear with me. Uh, <laughs> one of the big problems I have had with Enterprise is their big bads. They had the, the time travel, the time war stuff, and then they had the, the Zindi, which are like a bunch of different aliens, types of aliens from the same planet, and they're just... I don't know. I find them boring and sort of lame secondary type sci-fi show aliens and enemies. And it's, if you're going to go back to the origins of the Star Trek universe, why don't you, you introduce some things that are actually going to pay off in later series. And the Andorians are the perfect thing. They show up in a couple episodes of the original series. They're meant to be sort of founding members of the Federation and this was a, a great chance to explore them. And I don't think they did it enough, but this episode, the Enar, is the first step in that direction. And Jeffrey Combs becomes the definitive Andorian, the same way he's the definitive Vorta. And in some ways, the the uh, uh, platonic ideal Ferengi when he's Brunt. So he is is great at taking these roles and making them something bigger than they were originally intended to be and the andorians are he, he gets to flesh them out they're they're a prideful species they're arrogant and they're they're violent but not in the same way the klingons are they're not as quick to anger but they do have a, a passion to them and he they make that real through his performance they make that character something that that it stands out as as a species in a way that they don't manage to do with some of the other species they introduce there a lot of other species are defined by what makes them separate from humanity like their special powers where they can they're like chameleons and can blend in with shadows or climb on walls or whatever the thing that makes the andorians separate is they are 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 just a heightened version of humanity in a specific way, the way the best aliens on Star Trek are. Vulcans are a heightened humanity in that they're they're they've purged themselves of emotions because they're they're just too passionate. And the Klingons are are all about honor and and they're you can define them by uh what separates them from humanity as far as emotional uh, emotions and um 
the way they react to things. Whereas as lamer aliens, it's more like what makes them weird, what makes them uh, like second skins or, or having symbiotes in them. It's the, the best aliens are the ones where uh, they're a reflection of humanity. And that only happens for the Andorians because of Shran. So I, yeah, there, wow. there we go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that is, <laughs> that's. I agree with you, Graham. That's a great example of 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 what they're doing, and I'm glad that they hired Jeffrey Combs to do that. So you can kind of see now that you've said that, I can kind of see. Oh, maybe this is what they were planning, and and they were setting that all up. But alas, they did not get the chance. Yeah, I mean. <sighs> Again, I I like Shran. I agree. I think that's a fun character. I really like his sort of frenemies bro rivalry with Archer. But the show, I don't know that it ever really found its feet. I don't know that I I think that like killing it when they did was sort of a mercy. They could have done a much better job of it. <laughs> that finale is terrible. Uh, yeah. but the, but on the whole, I think it had run its course and I don't I know def- that if, if anyone could save it, it would be Jeffrey Combs. But even then, I don't know. That's a, that's a it big burden. So can do. It's like, different podcast, different podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, in any case, Jeffrey Combs, uh, what do we end up with there? Cause of the overlap on the list, we had about seven really good episodes of Star Trek. All thanks to, all thanks to him. Yeah. I think so. I think so. He's a hero, and uh, he's pretty good in this episode of Lower Decks, but I'm sure we'll get into that a bit more when we do our our rundown of Season 2 of Lower Decks in a few weeks. Yeah, it's almost done, isn't it? God, I love that show. But again, that will come another time. really is a silver lining. (laughs) Yeah, really. Joel, thank you so much for coming back on. Uh, That is exactly the level of geek knowledge and enthusiasm (laughs) that we need to make this ship fly, so... You are you are the dilithium in this episode's warp core. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. While we're giving out thanks, I would be remiss not to mention Oliver Wickham, a guy behind our theme song, a music producer. He's got a bunch of awesome stuff on Spotify. Please go check him out. You won't regret it. That's great. Uh, and also want to say thanks to you. Um, it's uh, We hit Star Trek a lot, and it seems like you folks love it, which is great because, I mean, we usually try to give you what you want, but Star Trek is close to our hearts. I don't know that we'd been able, we would, be, I don't know that we would be able to avoid it. So it's a Good thing you're enthusiastic. If you had other thoughts, if there are other Combs episodes or characters you think we should have covered, or just other things about Star Trek in general, it is probably hands down our favorite thing to talk about. Graham, how can they get those questions, concerns, comments, etc. to us? Please email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5, and we're on Twitter at geektop5. You can also leave comments on our website, geektop5.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Those reviews, by the way, super helpful to us. Um, it gives us a really good idea of where we're being listened to and how and what episodes, etc. Um, just a tiny bit of time out of your day will make a huge difference and uh, just basically improving the quality of Geek Top 5 coming straight to you. In the meantime, uh, about seven Jeffrey Combs episodes, and if you look him up, uh, there's there's even more. The guy does a lot. Plenty of stuff to keep you busy until we get a chance to do this again. Until then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week.